0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and centre. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve?
2: Your connection from the London
0: market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It
0: feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This
1: is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. With Guy
0: Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years.
2: On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Uh, good evening. Welcome. You're listening to K. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Uh, we have made it. It is Friday. It has been quite the bumpy week, um, but let's put that behind us and think about what comes next. Um, let me just talk you through some of the price action, which I think is fascinating. So this week, European equities have in some ways just gone sideways. but. Midweek, we hit a high. We then faded. Um, And what we basically ended up with at the end of the week is a stock 600 that is trading uh, basically, let's call it 452, which is exactly where, Alex, analysts that we've surveyed say it's going to finish the year. So today is January the 20th and European equities are already at the level that European equity strategists think they will be at the end of the year.
0: So, either we, we no longer return anything ever yep. again for this year, uh, or we're in for a huge bumpy ride, um, or we're going to get a sell-off and then ba- rally back up, or uh, we need to start upgrading our forecasts. Um, I think yep. that that is quite interesting, and we're seeing some start to upgrade a little bit. Are you chasing the market at this point? I feel like that's where we were for the U.S. at the beginning of last year.
1: It does. So I think it feels eerily familiar to what we saw last year at the beginning of the United States. I think that's a really smart thing to point out. I can't believe I'm saying that. What? But yes, Wait, I know.
0: There's a bell ringing somewhere.
1: There, there is. Believe you <laughs> me. Uh, it's Friday. It's been a long week. I feel I like need to be nice at this point. Um, so, so yeah, but so so kind of what, what I think that signal was an incredibly choppy year. Uh, and I think probably that's going to be a similar story th- this year as well. The other thing that I think is interesting and worth pointing out today is a huge pickup in yields. So I'm looking at an Italian 10-year mm-hmm. that's up by 20 basis points today. The bunds are up by 10 basis points. Treasuries are up by 10 basis points. So th- this week we have seen a series of central bankers, particularly here in Europe actually, but to a certain extent over on your side of the pond as well, basically sort of banging the drum and saying, we are going to continue to hike. Now the yeah. market has not believed central bankers thus far. I wonder whether this Friday whether they are beginning to believe
0: but on the flip side here in the u.s we're seeing a strong rally in u.s equities yields popping higher yet tech outperforming so scratch your head on that one
1: yeah i think the tech is idiosyncratic
0: Maybe the worst is baked in, job extent. layoffs, Well,
1: no, I think the job layoffs, yeah. I, think the, I think the the Netflix numbers are, are also pretty good as well. Anyway, that's where we are with the markets. We've got lots to discuss. Let's get some headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet.
3: I uh, thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. And here's what's going on. Britain's state-run health service is set for its worst ever day of industrial action after another union announced 10 more strike dates. The Unite Union says ambulance workers will walk out in parts of England and Wales on a string of dates over the next two months including February 6, when they will join nurses and emergency staff represented by other labor groups. Ambulance workers from the GMB Union had already said they would strike on that day alongside members of the Royal College of Nursing. Finished with that soft drink, well from 2025, consumers in England will be able to claim some of their money back if they return the empty plastic bottle or can for recycling. The deposit return scheme aims to reduce littering of drinks containers by 85% in England, Wales and Northern Ireland three years after launch. The UK saw a net outflow of more than 1,000 high net worth individuals in 2022 as post-Brexit departures, Continue amid a turbulent political climate and creaking economy, a new report from the citizenship advisory firm Henley and Partners found there was a net outflow of 1,400 people with a wealth of one million pounds or more from the UK in 2022. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellets I like the idea of returning soft drinks and getting money back. That was my childhood. I remember returning bottles of fizzy pop, as we used to call it. No, I'm aging myself here. Um, And Alex (laughs) is going to laugh. But yeah, it's a really good idea. Um, Let's talk about about shopping. Uh, I I segue badly to talk about Mm -hmm. what is happening uh, with UK retail sales. Uh, And I'm going to paraphrase our next guest here. UK retail sales falling pretty sharply last month basically finishing the worst year on record since 1989. Uh, This obviously is the cost of living squeeze, uh, basically uh, puts the pressure on the UK consumer. Now I'm slightly sort of, I, I, I saw these numbers this morning, and I was genuinely surprised because the data that I've seen from companies like Marks & Spencer, from Next, from some of the groceries, uh, so gro- uh, grocery companies, I thought had been quite good in December. So I was quite surprised to see, to see these figures. So let's try and figure out what is going on here. Bloomberg UK economy reporter Lucy White joining me in the studio. Lucy, I've seen the, the big retailers report numbers, and they were good. And yes, I look at this data, and it is not. Why?
4: Well, as you mentioned, you know, there, ha- there has been uh, a, b- a bit of a divide among some of the retailers. For example, as you said, uh, Sainsbury's, Next, Marks & Spencer's all had great trading periods over Christmas. Um, you know, obviously, consumers, despite facing a cost of living crunch, were reluctant to cut back on some of their Christmas food. Yep. But, you know, we've seen other retailers really struggling, um, for example, Jewels, um, the, it the clothing bust. retailer, it got taken yeah, over by now. exactly, and uh, we've also seen Doc Martens have some have some disappointing figures. That the, the, the bootmaker. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, on the one hand, you've you've got the, the the certain retailers who are managing to to you know hold hold up quite well. On the other hand, you're seeing those who whose products perhaps aren't quite as in demand and, and aren't as essential as as they uh, perhaps once were. Um, seeing their figures really, really struggle. Well, the, my concern is that
0: we, were, everyone was expecting December sales to hold up, but then January and the 1st half to be really terrible. If if December was already bad, like how much worse does it get?
4: Well, it doesn't bode well. I mean, you've got the five, including fuel sales, um, retail sales were down 5.8% in December. That's, as you mentioned, worse than the 4% that uh, economists were expecting. Um, excluding fuel, um, they were down 6.1, which uh, you know, as Guy mentioned, was the worst uh, on record since 1989. Um, obviously, in December we did have uh, we did have Christmas, kind of you know, giving retailers a bit of a boost. But yep. in January now, where you know it, the picture looks quite bleak for retailers, uh, and several economists have commented this morning that it's we've probably got worse to come. The, the one kind of
1: ray of sort of sunshine in all of this is the labor market is holding up. Uh, And I appreciate the wages are not keeping up with inflation, but inflation is falling. The the governor talks about that, that, that this week. If wages can hold up, can the retail sector hold up?
4: Governor Bailey does does say that you know he's hoping that inflation has turned a corner, um, but you know it's a lot still remains to be seen. You know a lot's depending on on gas prices, for yep. example, and a lot depends on how embedded um, you know inflation expectations mm-hmm. are becoming in the system. You know because our workers sort of looking at the inflation figures at the moment and thinking you know I'm going to demand higher wages. Um, you know as you know since the since the pandemic. Drew to a close lockdowns drew to a close we have seen huge demand for workers uh, which implies that perhaps any recession that does come this year might be uh, or might have less effect on on the labor market than than previous recessions yep. well um and, and
0: that also goes to the point of like what do people then do with their savings so here in the u.s we're starting to spend it we know that that hasn't happened in the uk so the labor market winds up holding up and then gas prices are coming down isn't that, like a good thing aren't people going to spend and stuff
4: Oh, it's interesting what you say about savings for uh, there was a, a study out a couple of weeks ago that that showed um you know although c- certain households might still have some of their COVID savings and uh you know th- that they save through lockdowns um the lower income end of the um of the spectrum has probably spent all of the savings that they had um and those people who who do still have savings may well be holding on to them thinking you know there might be more w- worse to come
1: so so where is this if you're the governor, in 30 seconds, how do you read today's data? Is it is it evidence that policy is working?
4: I would hate to be in the mind of Andrew Bailey uh, right now. Um, I think you know, as I, uh, as you said earlier, he is uh, he is hopeful that the corner might have been turned, but you know, uh, he'll still be keeping very close eye on all the data.
1: Okay, we're going to leave it there. Can I say that was your first performance? Fantastic!
4: <laughs> oh, next nice job. Coming. Would not have known that. You are, that. You
1: are definitely much. coming back, Lucy White. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: And good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele of New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Uh, talking about the app performance, uh, CAC's 40 uh, index had a great... Cat Carroll, I guess I would say, uh, had, a, had a pretty good start to the year. Um, yes, we're seeing a little bit of weakness maybe uh, in into the end of this week. Uh, bond yields up uh, substantially here by 14 basis points. But it's been pretty good. And that conflicts with the economic turmoil that we're seeing with these union strikes over pension rules. So it's being labeled like the biggest protest of Emmanuel Macron's time in office. And that this could be a prolonged, legacy-defining battle over pension reforms. You had um, mil- uh, about a million people, more than a million people, taking the streets yesterday led by labor unions to oppose the idea of increasing the uh, the minimum retirement age to 64 from 62. So in Davos, uh, Francine Lacroix was able to sit down with Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister, and they started talking about pension reform. And he really said, you know, the government is sticking with this plan
5: everybody can understand that there are some uh, oppositions we are a democracy so we fully recognize the rights of uh, everybody to oppose the reform but we also strongly believe that this reform is a necessity for France so we will uh, stick to that reform even if of course there will be a debate in the French parliament and in the framework of uh, the debate within the French parliament so there might be some improvements of the reform
6: how much France is losing because of the strikes economically? How much are they costing?
5: I don't think that uh, strikes uh, do have a very uh, important uh, economic impact on uh, the uh, economy, uh, the French economy. The French economy is doing well. We have uh, a pretty uh, strong level of growth. Uh, we are creating jobs. We have a high level of uh, investment. We have a very low inflation. So I'm deeply convinced that France is doing well, and the French economy is doing well, and I really think that the strikes will not hurt the French economy.
6: Minister, do you think the US and Europe are aligned on how to treat and deal with China?
5: I think that there is a slight gap, I would say, and we are all aware of that. Um, The US want to oppose China. We want to engage China. And I strongly believe that in the world game, China must be in. China cannot be out. Let's have a a look at the reality. Everybody is speaking about the uh, tensions, the oppositions between the U.S. and China and the determination of the U.S. to decouple from China. But the reality is that the level of trade between China and the U.S. has never been so high. So between the statements and the reality there is a gap and let's have a look at our own interest our own interest if we want to be uh, efficient and successful in the fight against climate change is to have china on board if we want to build prosperity and have more trade our own interest for both the us and europe is to have china on board we want china to obey by the same rules
1: what is interesting is that the French almost seem to be pointing to the idea that actually, right now, the U.S. is is one of the biggest challenges, Alex, mm-hmm. a- and that comes in the form of the the um, Inflation Reduction Act. France is is really ticked off with DC about this and feels now that Europe needs to step up to the plate and deliver something similar. Now that's going to be a challenge in, in, a, in a in a in an economy that is basically got a series of different competing agendas. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to see where Europe is positioning itself. Between the United States and China, against the United States on, on the climate pact, it's, it's, the, the politics around all this are fascinating.
0: I, I just don't quite understand how they're going to be able to deliver something similar, as you say, with the competing agendas. And I've been saying this also, is that the U.S. could tweak the law and say, okay, if your car parts for your EV are made in Germany, like that's okay, we'll accept that. Um, but other than that, like that ship is gone. like It's sailed. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, done. Totally. Like, we are spending the money, yep. and companies here are super pumped about
4: it.
1: They really are. And European companies are super pumped about it as well, and they see investment opportunities in the United States. Uh, and I don't think we've really understood the implications of this yet. Eisenhower invested in the, the interstates. It had a really big impact uh, on the U.S. economy. Uh, the space race, all of these kind of... When the U.S. government starts getting involved in a meaningful way it is going to have a huge and profound effect. And I don't think everybody quite understands the size and the scale of what is happening here yet. Anyway, this is Bloomberg. This
2: is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening
0: to the Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So the question that we were asking all throughout television this morning, whether you're looking at uh, Europe, whether you're looking at the US is, are the highs in for the year. So, let's talk a little bit about markets and then how things are positioned as we do head into more earnings uh, in Europe and the U.S. We do still have a Fed blackout period, but we will have rate decisions in a couple weeks. Um, I want to get more insight here from Alice Andres. She is Bloomberg Rates and FX Strategist, and she joins us now. Um, Great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Eddie Vandervault loves talking about you. He talks you up all the time. What are you noticing in the market right now? Like, what's leading? Why are we seeing the market moves that we're seeing?
7: Well, Alex, you know, one of the things that we're focused on here in the Treasury market, of course, is this debt ceiling issue.
0: Really? Wait, wait. You care about that already?
7: Yes, we do care about it already. We are seeing very significant market moves in very specific markets uh, that are moving quite actively. And uh, they are sounding a few alarm bells.
1: Is that why you've got the 10-year up by nine basis points today? Italy's up by 20 basis points today. Bond markets have seemed to have taken a very sanguine view of the world over the last few weeks. Um, European equities have been trading like their early cycle. Gas prices have come down. China's reopening. Feels like we're off to the races again. Are we today, this Friday, starting to get a little bit of fear back?
7: Well, I tell you what. Um, one of the markets that I'm really focused on here is the credit default swaps market. It's not the most popular market in the world, but it is certainly a really great market to watch in terms of market fear. And what I've been noticing is that credit default swaps on the USA sovereign debt have bolted higher this week. And that's as investors could price in the potential that the U.S. could default on its debt. Now, you might ask, what is a credit default swap? And it's a credit derivative that basically ensures against that risk of default, specifically on U.S. debt. And I'm watching the one-year credit default swaps because the U.S. Treasury is slated to run out of cash to service its debt sometime this year. Now, for those that aren't really familiar with the product, they are developed back in the 1990s, and they were a key gauge for me during the global financial crisis when firms like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers were blowing up. I would watch what the credit default swaps were doing on these firms, and when I would see them widen out dramatically and watch their stock prices plummet, Um, you would know that they were potentially heading for a default or a bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So I've been watching this one-year credit default swap on the USA. They've widened out to about 77 basis points today. And that's the highest since about 2011. And why that's important is because In 2011, we had another debt ceiling standoff, and it caused the S&P Global Ratings to downgrade the sovereign rating of the USA, taking away its AAA rating. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a little background on these CDS for one year, they typically trade 10 to 20 basis points and, truthfully, closer to 10 basis points. So a move to 77 basis points within a week is very significant here. And also, they're bumping up these highs from 2011. So it's certainly a real possibility. Now the bigger yeah. trade will be like when to start to take this off,
0: right? Um, and then timing and- that, and then with the brinkmanship, like that's going to be super tricky as well. Um, if I just take a look at the broader bond market, we were mentioning this here and in the U.S. I mean, yields are like really jumping. Like Italy's ten-year uh, yield is up like 20 basis points. Do do you have a reason for why we're seeing this particular sell-off right now?
7: Yeah. Well, today's price action is more about profit taking, to be to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, we've had a really nice bond market rally. We've had strong demand for auctions, not only 10s, 20s, 30s and 10 year tips yesterday. And people are long and the pressure is on these belongs uh, the today for sure. And, you know, given that we're entering the Fed blackout period, which starts tomorrow, we start Lunar Year New, New Year next week absolutely perfect time to take some profits in the bond
1: market. There's also an element here that the market's beginning to believe the Fed. This week, once again, yes, there's been a kind of toning down of of kind of how big an increment we're going to see over the next few meetings. But ultimately, the the message has been very clear, not only from the Fed, but also the ECB, that the, the final destination is probably significantly higher than when the market is currently pricing. Are we seeing a a kind of renewed appreciation of the message from these central banks? Or, as you say, is this just simply a positioning narrative?
7: Well, I I do think it's partly positioning. But, um, you know, keep in mind also we do have Waller coming up. He's a hawk. He will be hawkish today. He could send the bond market a, a little bit uh, lower for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it seems like whenever a hawk comes out, the bond market sells off. Whenever a dove comes out, the bond market can rise a little bit. Um, so it certainly could be something like that. Um, truth be told, it's a Friday and we've had a lot of buying. And I think really today's price action is a little bit more on um, profit-taking. The other thing is is that we are seeing a fairly decent amount of mortgage origination. This doesn't really um, get talked about a whole lot, but when you do have mortgage origination, which means a lot of people buying houses and they're producing mortgages, it does create some supply,
0: hmm.
7: and it can weigh on the bond market with some hedging flows. And it being a Friday and early, uh, a lot of those flows come through the market early on Friday.
0: Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. That's an excellent point. Um, so, when you take a look at the treasury market, then where is the biggest pain point that you see over the next couple of weeks as we head into the Fed meeting, we have the black up here and then the Fed meeting?
7: Well, you know, the biggest pain point is if we have a, a little bit of a pivot, which you know, some. So, so here's the thing: there's there's a lot of accounts positioned in flatteners, a lot of accounts. Stating that with some steepeners, I think that the pain point would be if you get a steepening move after the Fed, which I, I don't really think that you're going to get, but I think that that would be your pain point. If you get a steepening move after the Fed, um, that would you know flush out a lot of these um, flatteners, and that, that could be your pain trade.
1: Alex, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Alessandro Andres, joining us, Bloomberg rates and FX strategist. Up next, we'll be back with Charlie Capellet. Uh We'll get you an update on what is happening uh, with the uh, with the headlines, uh, and we'll get you an update on what is happening with these markets. Um, right now, you've got an equity market that is uh, looking a little bit um, interesting. You've got a nearly a one and a half percent rally in the uh, in the Nasdaq. Tech is having a good day. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. U.S. markets, SP up by 8 tenths of 1%. Uh, tech definitely outperforming. Um, bond market definitely on offer. 10 year yields up by about 10 basis points. I just want to talk about a couple quick stocks here in the SP. First, Netflix, obviously one of the outperformers, up by almost seven percent. We'll get to that later on in the show. Actually, subscriber growth did really well, and they're able to, you know, get subscribers even though they're also having uh, ad revenue at the same time. Yay! That's the double whammy that we were looking for and onto the upside. On the downside, you have Nordstrom's um, slashing its annual profit guide and citing a consumer pullback during the holiday shopping season. However, they are looking better with inventories going forward, and definitely talking my own book here. SLB, which is the chain's Slumberger oil services company, super solid, revenue beat, margins grew, earnings up. But the reason why I highlight that is they're also talking about their ability to expand margins and grow that, which, if you trickle that down, is going to be a tough sell for the oil producers, which then could wind up crimping production going forward, which then feeds him to the oil price narrative. See, it all is about commodities. Okay, that's a snapshot from where I sit. Now let's get some more headlines here with Charlie Powell.
3: thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. No decision was made on the provision of Germany's Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine at a key meeting today. But the nation's new defense minister says Berlin could move quickly if an agreement is reached. The U.S. defense chief said he had no news to share on M1 Abrams tanks. The U.S. and its allies met at Ramstein Air Base in Germany to discuss assistance for Ukraine including the provision of heavy weapons. More than half of Britain's homes fell in value in the final three months of last year as high borrowing costs and spiraling inflation weighed on the housing market, property portal Zoopla says almost 16 million of the nation's 30 million homes lost an average of 3,900 pounds in value between October and December. Shares of Delarue, that is the British maker of banknotes, plunged almost 10 percent today in London after suspending its printing operations in Kenya and said that it was implicated in an investigation by authorities in India. Shares fell to the lowest in about six months after it halted activities due to subdued global market demand for banknotes and the expectation of no new banknote orders from the Central Bank of Kenya for at least the next 12 months. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: Charlie, thank you so very much. I'm um, Talking about housing, we did get housing data here in the U.S. as well. Existing home sales fell in December to the slowest pace in over a decade. and That capped One of the worst years for the housing market on record as mortgage rates really climbed as well. Speaking of that data, because you could argue that that rollover in the data is something the Fed wants to see, uh, Mike McKee sat down with Kansas City Fed President Esther George, and they started with the economic data. This is basically her exit interview as she ends her term.
6: Yes, I think the economy is responding to uh, some of the forecast and some of the work that the Federal Reserve is doing to try to bring better balance between supply and demand. And of course, as rates have gone up, it always hits most directly, I think, real estate markets. And in particular, we've seen that in housing where mortgage rates have doubled. So these trends, um, I think, are to be expected in that sector in particular.
8: Well, a lot of your colleagues uh, have said they're paying more attention to current rate measures than to the data that comes out in the CPI and PCE uh, price measures because it's lagged. why don't you just sort of ignore the idea of uh, the core rate? Because everybody comes out and says, well, inflation's too high. You look at the core rate. But you you know that's uh, influenced by housing. And if you take that out,
6: seems inflation's coming down faster than you thought. I think it's encouraging to see. Because we've seen this in the goods sector uh, of the economy. That inflation has been coming down. Um, I think when we look at the housing uh, component of that, we can see uh, toward this year. That should be, again, coming off some of its highs. I think right now, for me, the focus has really been on the services sector and the inflation pressures that we continue to see there. So the direction, I think, is a good one. Inflation is still well above the Fed's target, and so to be true to that price stability mandate, um, it looks like we'll have to be a little more patient to see uh, if we're on the right trend and gonna be there more convincingly to that 2% target. Well, what would
8: it take to convince you
6: So I think, again, looking to the component of the market right now where we continue to see a lot of pressure. Labor markets are very tight. I hear that uh, when I go around the region, talking to our contacts there. So I think the pressures we see in the services sector look likely to continue. We know that spending is continuing. People are still traveling a lot and and, uh, taking advantage of that. So I think that would be a component where I'd want to see some progress. Uh, before having more confidence that we're seeing inflation come down.
8: Fed was slow to see inflation rising as fast as it did. Uh, Could you be too slow to see inflation falling?
6: Do you think it uh, could fall faster than you anticipate? It's one of the things we have to be very mindful of. So there are lags with uh, this policy instrument. It transmits pretty quickly to financial conditions, and, of course, we've seen that. But we also know that there's uh, lags, so it's in the pipeline coming. It's one of the reasons that last month I supported that downshift to a 50 basis point increase because I think it will be important to begin to watch very carefully, what signs are we seeing in the data, but also listening to our contacts in the region and understanding are we beginning to see uh, the kind of progress we need to see.
8: Well, you had a reputation as an Uber hawk, somebody who was always uh, very on top of inflation and yet you were the first one to warn about the lags and the fact that the Fed had to be careful. Was that because of something you were hearing from your constituents out here?
6: Well, in, in this most current tightening cycle, I think we were beginning to approach this at the same time that we were taking some dramatic moves to reduce the balance sheet. And so you want to make sure that as you start off on that uh, path of tightening, that you're communicating well and that you are not going to be more disruptive with that. I think we're in a good place today, again, being very clear about the commitment to getting back to 2%, some of this aggressive tightening. But we are reaching a point, I think, where it will be important to start looking around corners, listening more carefully for where some of those shifts are going to take place.
8: Have you been surprised by the strength of the labor market and the fact that you've raised rates, 450 basis points, and the unemployment rate's gone down?
6: So it is. This is a very tight labor market. And I think unusually so in this sense. We've seen 3.5% unemployment before. But when we look at the people that are engaging in that workforce, we are still down in terms of participation compared to where we were in 2019. We see a number of job openings for every uh, available worker. And so in that sense, all the indicators show how tight the labor market is. And again, when I go out and talk to people, it's their number one concern, the ability to find people to come to work. So I think on the supply side of the economy, we're seeing some binding constraints there. that are making it more complicated, if you will, to see uh, inflation come down in a very convincing manner.
8: Raise uh, unemployment by a full percentage point, and it's about a million and a half people who lose their jobs. Do you think there's a path to avoid that now? Do you think that maybe this is a different enough dynamic that unemployment doesn't have to rise significantly?
6: I think when you look so far, so spending has held up, what I'd really be looking for is to see, are some of those job openings gonna come down? Will we see some of those vacancies removed as we see this imbalance uh, begin to be addressed? So I think this scenario of can there be a soft landing is one we would all want to see. And there are some possibilities for that. There's still a lot of money sitting uh, in the, the checking accounts of households. They may hang on to that. That will make the job easier to the extent that moves out. That may create more persistent need uh, to tighten. But I think you have to wait and see how that unfolds.
1: That was Esther George, uh, the outgoing Uh, Kansas City Fed president. Uh, Talking to Mike McKee a little bit earlier on, uh, her exit interview, uh, let us call us that. Uh, Okay, crypto next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening, you're listening to Cable Bloomberg DAP Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, OK, let's talk about crypto, because something that happened overnight that was super fascinating is uh, Genesis has now filed for bankruptcy, and this is the crypto lender. So basically, it goes a little bit like this. You have Genesis that uh, borrowed money from Gemini, And paid a nice, juicy return. And then, in turn, Genesis would go and lend that money out and hopefully get a nice, juicy return. And Gemini had a Gemini Earn product where they took people's crypto money uh, and they guaranteed them an 8% return. That's how the money went. From consumers to Gemini Earn... Gemini to Genesis to everywhere else. And everywhere else happened to be things like Alameda. It happened to be things like uh, Three Arrows Capital. And all of those, uh, of course, went belly up. I say all this because yesterday, Genesis filed for a Chapter 11, and they listed seven creditors that were over at least a million dollars. And by far, Guy, the biggest one is about $766 million claim uh, related to the customers of Gemini who have stuck money with Genesis' lending unit. It's it's really tough. It just shows how interconnected uh, they all actually are. And $765 million is a lot of money. Uh, Joining us now in the studio is Shanali Bastic. Shanali, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Walk us through who's in the deepest pile of yuck.
9: Yeah, it's interesting. $3.5 billion is, to your point, a lot of money. The Gemini businesses that earn business here, that we have been talking about for months Mm -hmm. now, uh, they are owed more than $765 million. The closest second to that is about $460 million. There's a lot of questions here about why Gemini even took on so much concentration risk. Why did they put their entire lending book with this counterparty? But the way it's unraveling now is quite scathing, and you're watching this Gemini business, which is run by the Winklevoss twins. Really fight back, fight to get as much money as they can for their own employees and/or so their own um, clients, as well as both sides here facing scrutiny from the SEC.
1: Um, is this unexpected, or is this was this expected? I, as as the dominoes started falling, was this one of the more obvious dominoes?
9: There were a lot of questions about it, Guy. Let me kind of show you what it felt like in the background here. The reason I, in particular me as a Wall Street correspondent, was so ingrained in the story is you had Barry Silbert, the founder of Digital Currency Group, well-known on Wall Street, former Houlihan Logie banker, kind of running around and trying to find ways to keep this business afloat. They went to really big companies, lots of asset managers that he knew, friends that he knew on Wall Street, and tried to get to them to invest, tried to help them to get through this period. So, in some ways, we knew that they were in financial stress. This is not the worst case scenario by any means, because what you're seeing is a very isolated bankruptcy process only Genesis Global Capital, which is a lending unit inside of the Genesis trading desk, is filing for bankruptcy, meaning Mm -hmm. the trading desk is still okay, And so far, Digital Currency Group, that Silbert Empire, is not facing broader contagion because of this lending issue. So
0: where does that leave the grayscale uh, Bitcoin trust ETF uh, ETF that's also kind of part of Silbert's empire?
9: Well, they have a whole bunch of other issues because they've been trading at such a steep discount to their net asset value. Mm And There's been a lot of controversy about this because that keeps investors frustrated. Other people want to take over sponsorship of this asset, and uh, it does pay a lot of fees to bury Silbert's empire. That's why he loves it so much. One more quick thing about Barry Silber's empire, you had one of our competitors reporting that CoinDesk might go up for sale. They hired investment bank Lazard to do so. So that's another kind of part of the empire here that could drum up some money for digital currency group should they need it. But your point on Grayscale is interesting because that is the cash cow. That is the part of the industry that many institutions from the very beginning really got exposure to Bitcoin through investing in this thing, but it became a way to bet on it becoming an ETF. And the SEC has really blocked that for a lot of amount of time now.
0: And I should say that Grayscale's not an ETF. They want to be an ETF, Exactly. there's exactly. a bigger issue there. OK, Shanali, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Um, great reporting. Um, like Guy's been saying, we were waiting for it. Now kind of what's next? But now we can kind of see where all the shoes are dropping, Guy.
1: Absolutely. Um, a- and we are, I suspect, we're, we're somewhere away from the end of this process, or at least understanding where the end of the process ultimately is. Yeah. This, is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Today is a sort of bad news, good news day for the tech sector. Um, The Nasdaq is up very sharply. Google is trading higher. Why is Google trading higher? Well, Alphabet, the uh, the parent company, uh, announcing earlier on that it plans to cut around 12,000 jobs. Just to give you a sort of sense of the scale of that, that's around 6% uh, of uh, Alphabet's global workforce. Now, this comes, of course, uh, against a background of wider tech layoffs uh, that we are seeing Really not just impacting Silicon Valley, uh, but all of the kind of the footprints of these large companies uh, around the world. Uh, The stock is now trading at the highest level uh, that it has been at in more than a month. It's been a fairly tough start for the year 2023 for the tech sector. Let's bring in from San Francisco uh, Bloomberg's very own Ed Ludlow to talk more about what is happening here. And I want to ask you a kind of big, big picture question. First of all, Please. this is a this is a growth company. This is yeah. a tech company that is that has become kind of emblematic uh, as part of the sort of the growth card. It is now cutting. Can you be growth and cuts? Can you have these two things hold these two thoughts uh, in the same sort of thought?
10: Well, you, you know, talking about layoffs, is never pleasant right so 12,000 on top of the 28,000 already announced from Microsoft and in, in Amazon is 40,000 in total this week right but very quickly to answer your question the street goes straight to protecting margin straight to eps straight to earnings and you know the market does cheer this kind of cost discipline this kind of action in the face of adversity and you know, we, we we already knew that coming out of the second and third course of last year, while we would see drops in EPS for the last three months of twenty twenty two, we're coming out of that trough. Well, this is a really good way to do that. And if you're an investor, you know, again, while it's unpleasant, it's the right move if what you're focused on is returns.
0: Do we know where the layoffs are gonna be hit the most, like what areas are gonna suffer?
10: Yeah, I think for me what's so interesting about this story and Mark Bergen's written very quickly and brilliantly about this, is the units that you'd think would be protected and where the future growth and promise lays are those that are also hit. And in Google's case, it's the treasured AI unit. And to me, I find that surprising because you look at the narrative from Satya Nadella at Microsoft, Andy Jassy in his memo to Amazon employees, a lot of that was about protecting the growth areas or at least reinvesting the savings from those cuts into growth areas. Google or Alphabet, the parent company, a little different. You know, that the, this, this, these cuts will affect the artificial intelligence uh, and research teams. And, you know, tying, bow tying this all together, the whole point is that AI is supposed to make all of their existing stuff better, whether it's the Google search platform mm-hmm. or Waymo, the self-driving car platform. So where does this leave these businesses? It, they are... Smaller.
1: Well, okay, smaller, <laughs> but, but, Relative. Yeah, sorry, but was, what are, that was, that was are they? No, no, no. It's all right. I'll take that what what are they what are they becoming is this is this is is this just another step on the road to maturity
10: you know uh you we we talked about this on on your tv show the other day right with that wonderful chart that showed the pandemic era hiring of all these tech companies metas what another one that we talk about right and if you stack up all of the jobs they added over the pandemic period. Then you take away the job layoffs that are announced this week. They still net out incredibly bloated. That's what I find astonishing. If you look at where they're cutting human resources, retail on the Amazon side, in Microsoft's case, some engineering teams, it seems yep, to be yep. in areas where they just overhired. And it's okay, okay, fair enough. But but have
1: we ever seen, like 2,000 is different because that's kind of where this all started and these companies were significantly smaller. Have we ever seen large-scale layoffs
10: in the tech sector that are akin to what we're seeing right now. No. I, uh, yeah, I, I get your question. I mean, Amazon's the perfect example, right? So the 18,000 jobs that Amazon's cutting are their biggest ever, the biggest yeah. layoffs they've ever done. So this and is they, a new skill set for them. They haven't done is. this before. This is, and this they is something in, they're, having, they're going to have to learn how to do properly. And they've invested through prior downturns, right? Yep. But you then have to say to yourself, well, 18,000 is a big headline on the Bloomberg terminal. It's only 1% of their global workforce. You know, they have more than, uh, you know, they have a million employees, which is really hard to fathom at times. Like, what are they all doing the whole time? Um, but, you know, th- that's the reality. It's a slight trim to a, to a juggernaut of a company.
0: So where does this leave them if we come out of a downturn? Like, are they going to be able to capitalize on a rebound in spending? Or is it going to leave these guys a little bit behind? Maybe we also just don't know yet.
10: Yeah, I think we don't know. I mean, um, I, I, I I know I'm a numbers guy, and I don't want to hit you guys over the head and bore you on a Friday. But go back to this. It never bore us. Well, go back to this protecting margin thing. You know, what are the margins that Microsoft's protecting? Gross margin is like forty to fifty percent, and you yep. know, they're a software company and a cloud company, and you know, like that's what they're always going to be. Um, Amazon, you know, all the headlines are around the devices business and retail. What is the cash cow of Amazon? It is a cloud company. In fact, it's the market leader in cloud computing. What is... I can keep going if you want, but what is yeah. Alphabet? You know, Alphabet is suffering because of an ad downturn. How is it aiming to make money? It's aimed long-term is to be a cloud company. But have they... Yeah. But have they ever had to learn how to defend margins before? The, the top
1: line has always done the work for them, hasn't it? Probably. And, what, and I'm wondering, therefore, as they as they try and become what they want to become... Is
10: And and cloud, I imagine, is fairly cyclical. These are skill sets that these companies are ultimately going to have to learn. Yes, and Meta is, is, is the poster child of that pain, right? That when investors realized that the day of the sort of high elevated double-digit growth was over because the thing that they fundamentally did was going away and they were transitioning to something else, investors sold the stock, you know, without oh. prejudice right so um i think it's it's a really good point that said the other criticism that investors levy at these companies is what are you guys going to do with all the cash on your balance sheets mm-hmm. um which seems True. a really hard position to find yourself yeah. in you can't win either way so no, you really yeah, can't really interesting my hope is they invest in technology and become more interesting than the companies they currently are as a silicon valley person that's what i hope
0: no nope, nope, fair enough
10: well, will they be allowed to do that well, that's, that's what my point I just made. I don't know, because investors seem to have, you know. No, no, but will this, the government
1: let them do that?
10: Yeah, m and is a story for another day. But this is the other thing. You know, like you look at Microsoft, they've laid off 10,000 people. They're going to gain 10,000 employees if they're allowed to buy Activision. Activision. Um, it's just, gosh, this messy. cycle. Yeah, it's messy.
0: messy. Um, hey, Ed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Happy, Happy weekend Friday. to you, yep. Ed Ludlow. Looking forward to the show tonight. That does it for us. Happy weekend, Guy. We'll see you guys on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Yep.